Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you, Lord, for the words of the prophets, and we thank you, Lord, for the word of John the Baptist, who came in the line of prophets, Lord, one like Elijah, to call us to return to you as we prepare to meet you. Lord, I pray this morning as the word of God is read and expounded, you would speak a word to us where we have strayed to call us back, to let us hear once again that beckoning from you to return, and hearing your voice that you would give us the grace to repent and come flying home to our Heavenly Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, I love this time of year. I love this time of year when culture warriors on both sides are scrupulously examining their Starbucks cups to see whether or not they say Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know, you know you've, got, you've got it pretty good in your culture and your society when your greatest, one of your greatest battles is whether your coffee cup says Merry Christmas or not, or does it say Happy Holidays or Seasons Greetings. It's really not the most significant battle in the culture wars. Well, here's John the Baptizer's greeting for us this morning as we approach Christmas. You brood of vipers! Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? That's not exactly the kind of words we expect to hear this time of year. But if we are to listen to John the Baptizer as we do every, every Advent season, this kind of confrontational language is unavoidable. After 500 years of silence, the word of God comes again to a prophet in the desert. Like rain after a long drought, God's word poured out on the dry ground of the hearts of his people once again. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John the Baptist a prophet in the mold of Elijah appears with this message. He says, get ready. The Lord is coming. The king is on his way. Things are about to change. God is about to do something he has never done before. He is coming. He's coming to his people. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And things are going to change when he comes. The powers of sin and death and hell are going to be confronted and overthrown. And so we heard in Malachi this morning, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So be ready to meet him as John's word, it's his message, it's his oracle. And that's what Advent is all about for us. Preparing to meet Emmanuel, getting ready to encounter the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. As we look back in history to his first coming and as we anticipate preparing to meet him again when he comes in great glory at the end of the age at his second coming. And John had a simple message, a very simple message, about how to get ready. He preached that being prepared to encounter the presence of the living God begins, it always begins with repentance. So whatever you may have heard to the contrary, Advent is a season 
about repentance. Yes, there's joyful and hopeful expectation. There's a longing for the coming of the Lord, but to be prepared for his coming means that we need to spend some time repenting, drawing back, coming back, returning to the Lord. But we, we have some challenges when we use that word. Repentance is one of those Christian words that I'm not sure that has a lot of a deep meaning to us. It's kind of one of those words we mouth without uh, having the full content and the weight of it present in our hearts and minds when we say it. We've got some challenges. The first of all, is there's, there's just a general misunderstanding. There's the challenge of the misunderstanding of what repentance really is. What does it mean to repent? There's the, also, there's the challenge of, of sort of information. Okay, well, what, are, what should be, we be repenting about? What's the content of our repentance? What, what, what should we repent about? And then, really, the, perhaps the greatest challenge is the challenge of the will. Uh, when, even when we know we are called to repent, we just don't like doing it. I don't want to do that. I like this wrong path I'm on, thank you very much. So how, how do I repent when that's not even my own desire? So let's kind of look at this and break this down and get down in the weeds with this message from John, this simple message, a call to return, a call to repent. Repent. What does it mean? What's, this, what's the definitional challenge of repentance? You know, the most common misunderstanding we have is that repentance simply means feeling sad or guilty uh, for doing something wrong. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling guilty. Therefore, if I'm miserable about something bad I've done, I must be repenting. Well, that's not correct. Sorrow and guilt, yes, they are certainly appropriate emotions to have when we do wrong, but they're not repentance. You know, there's also a new twist that is being confused with repentance, and social media has supercharged this. It's talking about the bad things that we've done in sort of a, a cathartic way to get them, get them off our chest. It's like confession of sin, but it doesn't really involve any requirement for change, for altering our patterns at a deep level. It is self-revelation without change as opposed to how the exhortation, we read that last week, but in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, I like how it says it, uh, it's, it's not, it's not it's self-revelation without change is not what we're called to do. And in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, it puts it like this. To confess yourselves, confess yourself, to confess yourselves to Almighty God with full purpose of amendment of life, with full purpose of amendment of life. Catharsis without correction is not repentance, it is exhibitionism. Someone has written that repentance does not just mean saying, I have sinned. Four men in the Old Testament and one in the New said, I have sinned. Pharaoh, Balaam, Achan, King Saul, and Judas all said, I have sinned, but none of them meant it. None of them repented. And against that view, John the baptizer cries out, he says this, and over against just feeling bad about it, he says, produce fruit, produce fruit in keeping, consistent with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, the, the primary Old Testament term for sin is, is het. And it simply means this. I really like this because, um, you know, we have a lot of 
perhaps cultural baggage, even, even some Sunday school baggage for how we understand sin. But in the Hebrew, it means to walk on the wrong path. It means to walk on the wrong path, to be in the wrong direction. And I like that. I think that's, that's very helpful. And the term usually translated and repent, shub, in the Old Testament, means to turn around. It means to change direction. So true repentance is revealed in actions in a changed life. Repentance produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Just feeling sorry is not repentance. Just talking about it is not repentance. Um, you know that I have uh, been a, a hiker for a long time, a backpacker, and well, one of my favorite hiking partners is my middle daughter, Katie. And the very first year I took her on the Appalachian Trail with me, uh, we were hiking in the, uh, on the Tennessee-North Carolina line. And uh, she had, you know, this often happens, you tend to spread out as you're hiking. People hike at different paces. Uh, I tell folks, hike your own hike. You know, you don't have to keep up with me, and I don't have to keep up with you, but we'll meet up at the rest stops, and we'll meet together at the end of the trail that day, and we'll have a meal together. And sometimes it's good to be by yourself so that you can think and pray and just uh, be present in God's beautiful creation. Well, Katie was behind me on the trail, and uh, she uh, was looking at her feet, as people often do, because, you know, you don't want to trip. And so she's looking at her feet, and she just keeps walking off on to a side trail without realizing she's left the Appalachian Trail, which is marked by white blazes, six-inch white blazes, at about eye level, and they're, all, they're there on trees in the woods. But if you're looking at your feet and you're not glancing up from time to time, if the trail moves off to one side, you're liable to take a wrong trail. And she did. It was actually a game trail. And finally, that trail petered out in the middle of nowhere, and she realized all of a sudden she was lost. And so and this, by the way, is, is how she got her uh, trail name, Lonesome Dove. <laughs> Uh, so she realizes that she's lost, and so what did she do? Well, by this time, she hasn't showed up. I'm, I'm on the trail. I'm walking back down the trail to the, towards the last place I saw her, and I'm calling, hollering her name, hollering her name. That's what you do in the hollers is you holler. And so I'm hollering her name, and uh, Katie is re she's turned around, and she traces her steps back to where she left the trail and she heard her father's voice, and we were reunited. That's repentance. Changing directions, coming back to the father. You know, we also have the challenge of information. If we're going to repent, we probably need to guide to what we should be turning away from. I don't know if you have noticed this, but there is a world out there trying to make us feel guilty about all the wrong stuff. You know, there's legalistic, human, man-made religion with rules on the one hand, so a legalistic kind of religion on one hand. And on the other hand, there's the twisted new morality of the council, council culture. But John doesn't let us get away. John the baptizer doesn't get, let us get away with feeling guilt for either of these. He brings us back to the core of God's call to his people and how they are to live. John the Baptist says, uh, the, the crowd asked him, what should we do then? And he answered, the man who has two cloaks, two tunics, should share with him who has none, 
and the one who has food should do the same. Stop hoarding the good things God has provided you. Share them with those who have nothing. Love your neighbor. Love of neighbor. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. So stop being corrupt and using the system to get rich off of other people's misery. That's a perennial message. Take only what you should legally and ethically take. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So stop using your authority and your strength to oppress others to gain financially. Be content with what God has provided for you. You know, this is one of the reasons, this need for what, to, of, of what do we repent? That's one of the reasons God has given us the law, the Torah. We need an objective standard outside of our deceitful hearts that reveals what genuine love of God and genuine love of neighbor looks like so that when we stray from the path, we know what we should be repenting about. This is one of the sweet teachings of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformers called this use of the law the third use of the law. Kevin DeYoung writes, the Heidelberg Catechism, and by the way, our New City Catechism is based in large part on the Heidelberg Catechism. It's what we teach our middle schoolers. He, said, he writes, that the Heidelberg Catechism included its exposition of the law in the gratitude section and not in the guilt section of the catechism. This choice reflects the widespread Reformation belief in the so-called third use of the law. The law was given for its first use to restrain wickedness. The second use is to show us our guilt and to lead us to Christ. But the third use of the law is as an instrument to learn God's will. The law doesn't just show us our sin so that we might be drawn to Christ. It shows us how to live as those who belong to Christ. And that's why, as Anglicans, we include the Ten Commandments in our prayer book. We like that third use of the law. So get out your prayer book. It's going to be an easy page number for you to remember. It's the book in your pew that looks like this. This is your prayer book. Get that out. Turn to page 100. Page 100. We, we think this third use of the law is so important that we put it in the prayer book. It helps us know the content of what we should be repenting of. So turn to page 100 with me. Let's do this like it has it here in the prayer book. Recall and response. God spoke these words and said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. Lord, you shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. Lord, have mercy upon us. Make 
who shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Lord, have mercy upon us and write all these your laws in our hearts, we beseech you. Isn't that beautiful? We need to have the compass of our of our affections reunited with God's true north of what his, his way that leads to life looks like. Now, the final challenge we have with repentance is one of the will. It is the, the problem of the will. Left to ourselves, we, we just don't want to do it. We, we're enjoying our sin way too much. That's why we need John the Baptist to come blazing out of the desert, scorching our ears with the word of God, commanding repentance. Um, do y'all remember the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes? It ended in 19, December 31st, 1995 was the last time it ran in a newspaper. And, uh, and since then, here in the recent years, it's been an ongoing April Fool's joke that Calvin and Hobbes is returning. That's, uh, it, it's not, unfortunately. Bill Waterson uh, stopped doing that in 1995, and I still miss it, though. And I remember in one of those comic strips, uh, Calvin is telling his tiger friend, Hobbes, he says, I feel, bad. I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. And uh, Hobbes responds, well, maybe you should apologize to her. And so Calvin ponders this for a minute, and then he says, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> we hope there's a less obvious solution. But as A.W. Tozer has said, God will take nine steps toward us, but he will not take the tenth. He will incline us to repent, but he cannot do our repenting for us. And so as I was thinking about this, um, you know, I... I was thinking about these challenges to repentance, and I got kind of stumped. Well, how do you, you know, okay, I can, we can kind of fix the definition problem. That's easy. We got the, the content, the, the information problem. We've got that down pat. We've got the Torah for that. But how do we address the problem of the will? And, uh, and the Holy Spirit prompted me. He said, he said, when you know the character of the God who loves you, you will desire to turn back to him. When you know the character of the loving God, who is your father, who wants you to be with him, you will be given the desire to turn back to him. And it is wonderful that our Lord Jesus Christ, here in Luke's gospel, that we just we read out of Luke's gospel this morning, and in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, he gives us a wonderful, wonderful demonstration an explanation, a story, a narrative of what genuine repentance looks like. It's the story of the prodigal son. We know that story quite well, don't we? We know the son uh, says, I want my inheritance, and he goes off and he, he leaves his father, and he goes off and he squanders his inheritance on riotous living, and he ends up feeding pigs. You know, that no, no Jew wants the job of feeding the pigs. We don't realize just how demoralizing and dehumanizing that was to the hearers of that story. And so as he's feeding the pigs and he's so hungry that he would even eat the pods 
the pods. I don't know what pods are, but only pigs want to eat them. He would eat the pods that the pigs were eating. And he says, you know, how much, how, how much do even the servants in my father's household have to eat and to spare? I know what I will do. He says that he came to himself. He came to himself. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me as one of your hired servants, and that'll be enough for me. And so he gets up and he returns to his father, and Jesus in that story says, and while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the boy began to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father never lets him get the full words of repentance out of his mouth. But he says, quick, quick, go kill the fatted calf. Go get a robe and put on his back and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and kill the fatted calf. Let us celebrate and have a feast for this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And once you realize that's the character of the God to whom you are repenting, who is waiting at the end of the driveway for us to come back home, who is waiting to run to us so that he can fall on our necks, embrace us, and kiss us, and will not even let, get, let us get our full repenting words out of our mouths before he clothes us in raiment as a child of his. Once we realize that, it breaks our stony hearts and gives us the affection that we need to come home. So that John's words to repent are no longer scary words of legalism. They're words of beckoning. Come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling to you and to me. Come home. Sinner, come home. And that's what Advent's about. It's just to remind us, you have been watching your feet and you've got off on the wrong path. It's time to come to your senses. Realize you're where you don't want to be. Turn around and come home. The Father's already coming in your direction, calling your name, hollering for you. Isn't that good news? Isn't repentance good news? Thank you, God. For words from your servant, the prophet, John the baptizer, who reminds us that you want us to come home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.